and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Smith. During this episode, Professor Ashley Brown from Imperial College London and Dr. Ahmed El Sharkawi from the University of Birmingham will discuss key racial inequities of care that lead to undertreatment for migrant populations and other racial minorities globally with or at risk for hepatitis C. Additionally, they will discuss plans to improve engagement across the care continuum and strategies to combat implicit racial biases that affect optimal care. This podcast is part of a larger educational program titled Tackling Racial Disparities in Care for HIV and Viral Hepatitis. Please visit the show notes for this episode to follow along with the slides and for more information on Professor Brown and Dr. El Sharpu. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. Hi, good evening. So what do we want to do with this particular presentation? Well, we all know that there are disparities in hep C care in specific populations. We know that hepatitis C can affect different populations differently, but we also know that there are a number of systemic-related barriers to care that many of our migrant populations feel difficult to get over. So how can we actually uh, ensure that those barriers are broken down and that equity of access to HCV care exists for everybody? We all know that hepatitis C is prevalent across the world, but it's not distributed equally. There are certain parts of the world where hepatitis C is more prevalent. And it's reasonable to say that hepatitis C generally is more prevalent in low and middle income countries for all sorts of reasons that we're gonna come on to in a moment. But of course, first of all, data depends very much on the quality of data. So there are many countries that perhaps are less able or less willing to collect prevalence data. So the data may be skewed, but it's also important to appreciate that the prevalence amongst the indigenous population may be very different to the prevalence amongst certain migrant communities. And the reason for this is clear when we look at this graph. Now, for those of us that practice in Europe, in North America, the majority of patients that we see will have acquired their hepatitis C through injecting drug use. And it's very reasonable, therefore, that most of the materials that go forward, most of the uh, programs and projects that attempt to identify people living with hepatitis C are directed at those who are currently or have previously had a history of injecting drug use. But when we look at those WHO regions, we can see that in most parts of the world, this is very far from the truth. And only a minority of patients living with hepatitis C in low and middle income countries actually acquired their hepatitis C infection through injecting drug use. So we need to bear that in mind and we need to make sure that we don't stigmatize people thinking that injecting drug use is the only mode of transmission of hepatitis C. When we look at all of the populations that we're particularly looking at uh, of people living with hepatitis C, I like to divide it into those that are easy to find and those that are difficult to find and those that are easy to engage and those that are difficult to engage. And the two groups we really want to talk about today are the settled immigrant communities in our cities 
tend to be difficult to find, but if we find them, are very ready to engage. But I also want us to think about those undocumented migrants, those people who have entered our countries through alternative means for whatever reason, but who therefore are very reluctant to engage uh, with authorities for reasons that they fear that that might affect their ability to stay in the country they've chosen to migrate to. So we're going to look at those two groups of, of patients in particular to decide how we can overcome the barriers. In order to illustrate that, I just want to pass over for the next couple of slides to my colleague, Dr. El Sharpri, who's going to take us through some of the statistics. Ahmed, over to you. Thank you, Ashley. Um, so I think it's, this is a nice meta-analysis published um, with the reference shown at the bottom of the slide. Looking at the particular prevalence in different studies of hepatitis C in immigrant populations. And you can see on the first slide here that there's a couple of studies from Italy and a couple from Spain. And what you have is depending on the area of origin of the individual studied in the individual publications, the seroprevalence rate differs. So, for example, in some of them, they do break them down to totals. Uh, so in Italy and in, in the first Italian study and the first Spanish study, you can see a, a total seroprevalence rate of between 4.5 and 12.3% antibody positivity in the uh, immigrant populations. As is typical of studies performed in, in the TENS, the uh, seroconversion, the conversion of that to an RNA positivity wasn't reported. Perhaps of more relevance is, is the Ford study down, the one from Spain, where the whole country seroprevalence, according to the ECDC, which is the European Communicable Diseases Organization, the overall seroprevalence in Spain is 1.7%. But when you look at people coming from Equatorial Guinea, for example, you can see that the seroprevalence there is 19.2% of antibody positivity, but in fact, 11.6% of RNA positivity. So I think this just underlies the fact that actually when you enrich your patient population with people from immigrant populations, you find significantly higher seroprevalence rates than in your indigenous population. And I'd particularly like to highlight this uh, study, uh, in, again, in this meta-analysis from Dorotel, uh, which was a study performed in Libya, where actually, compared to its neighbor Egypt, where the seroprevalence rate in Egypt is significantly higher, above 5%. The overall seroprevalence in Libya is 1.2%. But look at the seroprevalence rates when you look at immigrants from sub-Saharan and Western Africa. Those are very high figures um, in terms of uh, antibody positivity rates of between 5.7% and 8.4%, and even up to 10% actually from parts of North Africa. So really understanding where your immigrant population in your particular locality has originated from gives you a little bit of idea about the seroprevalence rates that you might expect, but you will expect to see significantly higher seroprevalence rates, often because of poor medical care that maybe we can come back to in their countries of origin. And with that, I'm going to uh, hand back over to Ashley. Back over to you, Ashley. So having accepted that there will be different prevalences amongst the uh, migrant populations, how can we identify them? Well, this really is where technology helps us out. Census information is gathered in most countries uh, of the population and the country of birth. And I think it's important we think about country of birth rather than ethnic origin or racial identity, because really the risk is related to the countries where these patients were born. 
Now, there's a lot of data out there that you can find. On the left there uh, is some computer mapping of the area around my hospital between Regent's Park and Hyde Park in West London. And what this mapping shows is street by street, which country is the highest country of overseas-born inhabitants in that street. And what you can see is that different ethnic groups or different groups from different countries will tend to congregate in certain parts of the city. It may be a street, it may be a couple of streets, it may be a small location. But what that actually allows you to do then is target those populations for countries where you know prevalence is going to be higher, and you can go out there uh, with specific information for the people in that area. On the right-hand side there, you can see the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. This is where I live, population of around a third of a million people in this one London borough. Uh, but you can see even down at the ward level uh, that the prevalence of certain populations uh, will differ. This is looking at the Bangladeshi population in East London, and you can see there there are huge differences ward by ward. The other way that you can look at is um, by targeting heat mapping general practices. Often certain groups, uh, patients from certain countries will tend to use the same primary care practice, often because the GP there speaks their language. And again, that allows us to get into that community to offer language-specific information to uh, educate or upskill the GP uh, to start to target his or her local population. It's important we talked before about how transmission may be different uh, in migrant populations. It's true that in many low and middle income countries, inadequate sterilization of medical and dental equipment uh, in the past, and in fact still continuing to this day in some countries, is a major route of transmission. In Europe and North America, we have uh, very strict protocols around blood transfusion, screening of blood donors prior to transfusion, but we know in some countries that simply doesn't occur and that blood transfusion remains a source of transmission uh, in certain countries. And of course, it's important to understand the cultural practices of the population you're talking about. Uh, so things like uh, circumcision, both male and female, uh, scarification, tattooing, pierce, body piercing, shaving, etc., may all be routes of transmission, particularly in populations where prevalence is higher. The other thing that is really important to remember is that the natural history of hepatitis C from infection to cirrhosis may take 20 or 30 years. So amongst the Western European population of injecting drug users who are infected in their 20s, this may not present a serious liver disease until their 50s or 60s, but people infected in childhood may present with significant liver disease uh, in early or mid-adulthood, 10 or 20 years earlier than the populations that we're used to seeing in Western Europe. Another um, uh, area of inequity is the prison population. One of my particular interests is the prison. This is based on data from England and Wales. And you can see here that the black and minority ethnic population in our prison is twice the prevalence of that in the general population. That the black and minority ethnic populations are overrepresented in prisons. Now, in prisons, much of the hepatitis C is, is due to drug-related crime. However, it's important to remember that many of those prisoners are first-generation migrants and may indeed have been infected through non-drug use, uh, and therefore it's important that we offer the appropriate 
uh, testing, screening, and counseling for those individuals who we find positive. How do we reach out to those populations once we've identified where they are? Well, it's important to consider how that population receives health information uh, through cultural or religious centers, language-specific newspapers, local radio stations, uh, pirate radio stations, are all ways that we've actually been able to reach out here in London to some of our migrant communities. It is essential to avoid stigmatization and to avoid uh, accusations of, of racism that you engage with local community leaders and explain to those community leaders why testing and treatment of hepatitis C in their local population is going to benefit not only individuals but the community as a whole and be guided by local community leaders. They will tell you how best to offer information, the best locations, and by engaging them, programs or projects to, to pick up specific populations will undoubtedly be far more uh, efficient and well-received. It's also important to remember that many members of our migrant population will have significant financial, domestic, employment, or childcare pressures. Many of the patients that I see from our migrant populations are on minimum wage jobs, hourly paid, or are at home looking after significant uh, family and domestic commitments. So it's really important that we minimize pre-treatment investigations, that we limit the number of hospital visits, and we adapt to make this fit in with the particular lifestyle demands of that population. The new directly acting antiviral treatments offer the perfect opportunity for minimal pre-treatment workup minimal on-treatment monitoring uh, and can really uh, go over well with this particular group. It's also really important to consider combining screening with other health issues. So a lot of our new migrant arrivals, we will combine screening not only for bloodborne viruses, but for tuberculosis, uh, for syphilis, for other issues that may be more prevalent in that particular community. On the political side, it's really important uh, that we contain the idea that treatment of hepatitis C is a public health issue, we shouldn't get involved in the politics. Treatment of hepatitis C should be independent of immigration status, the absence or presence of health insurance or the ability to pay. It's really important, particularly with those undocumented migrants, that we make them feel confident that the treatment of their hepatitis C will in no way jeopardise their current right to remain, uh, that we're not about to inform the immigrant, uh, the migration, the immigration authorities uh, or the tax office or anybody else about the presence of these people. The treatment of hepatitis C should be independent of any political uh, consideration. And it's also important, perhaps I should have said this at the beginning, that in the absence of universal screening, it's absolutely right that we should target communities where we believe the prevalence is likely to be higher. But it's really important when we do this that this is not seen as stigmatizing or somehow singling out that particular population in any way, shape, or form. So I think uh, up to now, hopefully, we've convinced you that uh, the migrant populations have particular needs. And um, both Ashley and ourselves are very conscious that at no point do we want to be seen to be using discriminatory language or anything. To me, the patient is key. And I always say, you need to learn from your patient. So if a patient feels uncomfortable because of language that we've used or particular things, and I think it's important as a, as a healthcare professional body 
and we learn from that. So I'd like to touch on a little bit of the data behind what some of what Ashley has is, is described in terms of genotypes of lymphoma infection and then some of the barriers and studies that have looked at how we address those barriers. So we'll start off with genotypes and length of infection, if we may. So again, this is very similar to some of the slide that Ashley showed you earlier, but this is actually now a breakdown of what genotypes are prevalent in which parts of the world. And I don't really wish to go into the slide in any detail. Suffice it to say that in some countries, so for example, we have a large Pakistani immigrant population due to historical ties with Great Britain. Uh, in those populations, we have a predominance of genotype 3. Similarly, um, I'm uh, originally from Egypt. In Egypt, 90% of all hepatitis C is genotype 4. So you just need to bear in mind when you're actually got a patient or you're targeting a migrant population to try and increase screening um, that you, your genotype-specific issues may come into play. Now, having said that, we know all the new treatments are very pangenotypic, effective against all the genotypes. But it is important still to think about genotypes uh, for reasons that I'll come to in a minute. I think the other important thing to say is there are significant gaps in the data. So Ashley uh, alluded to this at the beginning of our presentation, that really the quality of data that we have about hepatitis C prevalence, it varies uh, immensely around the world. And I think here, here are areas in Africa, and you can see that there are huge swathes of, of Africa where we don't have genotype-specific information. And I think that's important because actually we do uh, increasingly recognize that there's a lot of migration from Africa into Europe and North America as well. So there are gaps, but um, bear in mind that you can roughly uh, try and work out genotypes. Now, why is that important? It's important because your, your migrant population and your seroprevalence rates in their country of birth, and I'll come back to the country of birth issue in a minute, can tell you what roughly what numbers you should be expecting if you're targeting the right patients. And if you're not getting those numbers, then you need to look at your screening methods and whether you're screening the right people. And here I've selected the seroprevalence and the predominant genotype in some of the common countries where we see significant migration to Europe and North America. As I've highlighted already, for example, Egypt seroprevalence is 6.3% with a 90% genotype 4 dominance. As I've highlighted already in Pakistan, we have a 79% genotype 3 dominance with a 3.8% seroprevalence. And the numbers of people in these countries infected with hepatitis C is huge. I'd like to point you out to China, because actually, although China has a low seroprevalence rate of 0.7%, the fact that there are such a big population means that there are significant numbers of hepatitis C in China. And perhaps China is not recognizing the viral hepatitis field, particularly for hepatitis C, it's more so for hepatitis B. But if you do have a large Chinese migrant population where, where you practice, and although the seroprevalence rate may be small, you're still likely to have a huge number of individuals there that you could potentially treat depending on the size of the immigrant population. So those are the points really I wanted to highlight from this slide. Now, why is genotype important? And Ashley alluded to this. It's important for two reasons. One, there is some data to suggest, for example, genotype 3 is more pathogenic. But Ashley also alluded to the fact that because we think the route of transmission in these patients is predominantly due to poor healthcare and they are infected early, that often they present in their 30s with significant liver disease. 
And it probably in our unit in Birmingham, we're a transplant unit, we probably get two or three transplant uh, referrals with decompensated liver disease still, often in young Pakistani men particularly. And we still see HCC presenting in young men who have not been picked up as having their cirrhosis. So I think it's important that when you are targeting migrant populations, we appreciate that we might need to see more significant disease, partly as well because genotype 3 is associated with higher metabolic syndrome rates, and that we need to be mindful of that when we're targeting our populations. So I'd like to shift gear a little bit and talk about primary care education and some systems-related barriers. And I'll show you some data from some studies predominantly performed in the UK, uh, but also partly in Europe, about where the, the barriers may lie. And where actually, if you do want to improve access to treatment in your migrant populations, you need to think about investing your effort and your resource if you have any resource. So this again just goes back, and sorry, we're presenting multiple data, but this goes. This is a very interesting uh, study that I'll let you read in your own time because the slides will be available after the presentation, looking at the risk factors for acquisition of acute hepatitis C in Egyptian patients presenting to a large academic center. And you can see here that most acquisition was due to unsafe medical practice, which means as well as the fact that you have individuals whose country of birth is from areas of high prevalence, you also have second generation people from those ethnic groups that are going back often to their country of origin. And certainly this concept of um, hepatitis C acquired at uh, dialysis abroad and um, so-called um, home dialysis acquisition is an important phenomenon that we do see. So there are important things that we should counsel people. There are important reasons why, actually, if you pick up someone who was born abroad, who's hepatitis C positive, their family should be screened, not necessarily because they've transmitted to the family, but they've often um, shared exposure risk in terms of visiting their country of origin. The other big barrier that we do see is language. And um, this is an interesting study published in 2017 looking at the availability of appropriately translated uh, information and also interpreters in different European countries. And this was actually a study combining hepatitis B and hepatitis C, but you can see here there's substantial variability amongst the countries in terms of translating materials and interpreters. And perhaps Ashley and I don't realize how lucky we are that often we can get an interpreter in our clinics relatively easily. What we are much more poor at in the UK, I think, is translating materials. And I think that's very similar, actually, uh, to um, the, the picture elsewhere. So actually educating uh, and providing certainly web-based interactive material that will help destigmatize the disease is an area that we need to look at as a community when we talk about hepatitis C elimination. Here is a study, again, this is just a continuation of the study, looking at whether uh, the clinicians themselves felt the lack of translated materials and interpreters was a barrier. And in Hungary, there was the largest element of disagreement here, but they had the poorest availability of interpreters and translating materials. Um, so I think it's important to say that this is a barrier. Most healthcare professionals recognize it as a barrier, and we need to think about how we overcome those barriers in our clinical practice. There are also issues with knowledge and perception. And in the interest of time, I'm conscious that we need to leave some time for questions and answers. I'd just like to highlight maybe two or three. So we've spoken about language barriers. There is often an issue with primary care physicians thinking that hepatitis C is only transmitted through injecting drug use. 
And that's where actually we need to be educating both our primary care physicians, but also patients to advocate and go back to their primary care physicians and explain to them, no, I'm not using Jamila's drugs. I've acquired it through um, unsafe medical practice in my country of origin. And obviously there's issues with stigma that I will highlight in a, in a minute. And in a way, people often combine hepatitis B, hepatitis C and HIV. And people feel that HCV diagnosis implies sexual infidelity or engagement in recreational drug use. And it goes back to what we were saying. It's about education. It's about detailization, both within the patient communities, but also within healthcare professionals as well. And here are some quotes from a, a very good paper uh, by Sweeney. Again, this is based in the UK. This was a piece of qualitative research uh, in amongst a wide group of uh, different ethnicity individuals. This was for both hepatitis B and hepatitis C. It just highlights the stigma that some of these people face. So the last quote in particular really struck me. One gentleman, his things were packed because he accidentally left in the kitchen his medications and the housemates Googled what he was using them for and found that it was hepatitis drugs. And then he came in from work and his things were in the suitcase. So that kind of real barrier and stigma is something we need to overcome. So how about solutions to overcome? How about screening and how can we screen? And it goes back to what Ashley was saying about country of birth being important. And this was a very interesting study in, in the UK, looking at community-based testing among South Asian immigrants in the UK, and they targeted uh, community centers, areas of worship, etc. And what came out quite strongly in this, in this paper was that the country of birth is more important. But the problem is that we're often very poor at recording country of birth in our medical records. So I think that's an area where as healthcare professionals, we need to improve so that we can actually target our screening in a better way to those documented migrant populations. I think for your undocumented migrants, you've got an assumption that their country of birth is already overseas, um, but actually targeting your screening in your settled migrant populations must rely more on country of birth, and we need to document that better. And finally, I think just before I conclude, bloodborne virus screening opportunistically, we've already touched upon it. This was a very interesting study presented at the International Liver Conference uh, from ESL in July, uh, this June this year, apologies, which was looking at opt-out testing for all three of the bloodborne viruses, HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C, amongst patients attending the emergency department at Leeds Teaching Hospital. Leeds is a large city in the north of England, large urban population significant number of ethnic minority populations. And essentially what they did was took, a, took any remnant biochemistry sample, made sure the patient had no objection to being tested for it, uh, for the viruses, and they screened and identified 73 hepatitis B positive, 70 HIV positives, but perhaps more importantly, 156 HCV RNA positive patients. And in those with active hepatitis C viremia, 4% of them had no risk factors other than coming from an area of high endemic prevalence, and they would not have been tested by their GPs necessarily, or they will not have felt themselves at risk. And it's very cost effective when you look at it from a National Health Service point of view in the UK to do this. So these are novel approaches that people may be able to implement to increase screening in migrant populations. So to summarize, there are still multiple barriers to ensure equitable access to hep C for people amongst ethnic minorities, even in systems like ours, which don't rely on insurance. 
I think a more nuanced approach is needed when you come to screening. And I think both ethnicity and perhaps more importantly, country of birth is important, but we need to document that much better in our medical notes. We should think about opportunistic testing in primary care. We've done some work in community pharmacies um, and in localities such as emergency departments. We need better translating material, better access to interpreters. We need to destigmatize the disease both within the healthcare professionals that are dealing with these patients, but also in the communities uh, from which they come. And with that, I'm going to hand back over to Courtney. All right. Thank you, Dr. L. Sharkley, for sharing best practices on overcoming barriers to HCV care, recognizing that it is essential to hear directly from a patient on how stigma and discrimination have affected experiences in seeking HCV care. Audio clips have been included in this webinar. During a recent interview, a Black or African-American female at approximately 50 years of age or older shared her experiences on disparities in HCV care and ways in which those barriers can be reduced. Please listen to the patient's thoughtful responses to the following questions. The first question was, what types of provider or healthcare system bias have you experienced that has impacted your HCV care? Please play the patient's response. When the cures became available, most insurance companies weren't even going to pay for the medication for people who weren't really sick. So that was a bias. And what, again, what I noticed was that some people did get access a little easier than others, and they were able to start treatment earlier and get cured earlier. Now, we're grateful that better meds came out after the, the onset. But just to think that I had to enter a clinical trial to get treated, perhaps when there were curative drugs on the market, you know, showed that it was just so much bias in the system. And again, you know, being Black is just one of it. The bias was also against what people thought of people who had Epsi, because regardless of what you say is your risk factor, they're going to assume that it was, you know, at the other end of a needle. The second question was, what advice do you have for clinicians for providing culturally appropriate HCV care? Please play the patient's response. See me and not just the disease. Be good at your job. Because if the doctor was really good, Patients didn't know how to appreciate them because they had no personality. They were not interested in the person. They just wanted to go and do whatever it was with that illness. Doctors who were really nice and caring and, and wanting to make sure you got treated nice were not as knowledgeable and not as well trained. The last question was, what advice do you have for clinicians for reducing health disparities in HCV care? Please play the patient's response. Make sure that each of your patients are getting what they need, which is access to a cure. They obviously have insurance. They're your patient. So if insurance is not the issue, it's transportation. There's certain things you just have to put in place so that you can get them there. You know, some people had started doing home visits and things like that. You got to show that you invested in what could be a better health outcome for them. 
Next, Dr. El Sharkawi will review the questions and answer choices for the second assessment question, and we will have a Q&A session thereafter. Thank you, Drs. Brown and El Sharkawi, for the excellent presentation. Now we will have our question and answer session. So I think there's a question for, for Ashley. Um, Ashley, we have a question here that says, you include those in opiate treatment as difficult to treat. Are you speaking of MAT? And I'm not 100% sure what MAT is. If that's the case, you would think it would be relatively easy to get some blood work on those patients as they come in for refills. Clarify, please. So I think that was not necessarily related to the presentation, but was related to your slide with the different... One of my instances. slides, yes, absolutely. Well, the first thing I would say is that nobody is difficult to treat. With the new drugs, nobody is difficult to treat. What If you look at the slide, what I actually said was difficult to engage. The reality is that we've actually probably now, certainly in West London, treated at least 90% of uh, the clients within drug and alcohol services uh, who are registered either as methadone users or as parts of the services. But there remains a, a group of patients who, however well you offer the treatment, and all of our treatment now is offered out in the community, nurses will go to the patient's door, they will do whatever's possible to, to help them, but uh, they still refuse to take uh, the, the antiviral treatment, which is absolutely their right. We are not in a situation where we are imposing treatment on anybody. We will make it as, as available to them as we possibly can, but some just uh, refuse to engage. By comparison, the majority of my migrant populations, uh, when they're offered treatment, are very, very ready to engage. They're very, I use the word grateful. I don't I know that shouldn't sound as it does, but you know, they are often very relieved that treatment is completely free at the point of care, uh, that they have been identified, and that we are offered to uh, screen other family members, for example. So it's very easy to engage the migrant communities once you've found them. By comparison, it's very easy to find. Uh, your opiate substitution patients, but it's not always easy to engage them. I think that was really what I wanted to get across. Yeah. So Matt, I'm being told there's medication-assisted treatment, which we call opiate substitution treatment in the UK. So that I think that uh, clarifies that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's also important to remember that not all people who use drugs are on opiate substitution therapy. There are many members of our community who've not yet engaged with addiction services, and we also need to reach out to them as well. So it's uh, blood work, incidentally, is, is, is a minor issue. I'm very happy now on the basis of a single thumb prick uh, to, to identify that a patient is viremic and get them onto treatment with that. So uh, blood work is really the least of our problems at the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think the more we can reduce the barriers to treatment, the better it is. Uh, so we've run a little pilot in Birmingham where we um, incentivize community pharmacists. So thinking about your migrant population who might be diabetic, who might be hypertensive, who goes to their community pharmacies to get their normal antihypertensive medication or anti-diabetic medication, and may not necessarily go to their GP very often because they're quite stable. And we've shown that we can use a single dry blood spot test and test for all three viral species, so hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV in, in targeted areas of high ethnic uh, populations, and we can pick up new diagnoses that way. We haven't published the data yet, but it is feasible, uh, provided you provide the right technology um, and the right training and the right incentives. 
I just wanted to quickly add on, I was interested in the Leeds uh, A&E study. Uh, we did a similar study in London and found very similar figures. And again, it's really important to remember that often our migrant populations, particularly the undocumented migrant populations, are not necessarily registered with a primary care physician. They will often use the accident and emergency department as their first base for primary care. And so again, programs set up within accident and emergency departments, uh, emergency rooms, as you would call them in the States, uh, really do uh, generate uh, identified patients, particularly from migrant communities. So, so sorry, Colleen, there's a couple of questions that popped up in the chat. So maybe I could take the second one about Birmingham specifically. So in the Birmingham pharmacy pilot, the pharmacists also prescribe DAAs. No. So this is very much just a testing pilot. But I think certainly in Europe, certainly in the UK, we are actively looking and, and, and people in Scotland and Tayside from John Binnan's group uh, have actually done this. And pharmacist prescribers are actually prescribing and dispensing the DAAs from pharmacies. And I think eventually that's the way forward, tying it to people picking up opiate substitution. And although there's been studies showing the effectiveness of that approach, I think it hasn't yet made its way into mainstream clinical practice. And that's certainly an area for both migrant and the intravenous drug using population that we could target. Actually, perhaps I can ask you this question. And um, the current screening strategy algorithm is to start with antibody testing, mainly for cost effectiveness reasons. Are there specific population or clinical situations where RNA molecular testing should be pursued despite having a negative anti-HCV results? So right. I presume okay. well, someone, yeah, go on. So the quick answer to that, to that particular question is if someone, if, if they're anti-HCV negative, I wouldn't go doing an HCV RNA. The reverse should be true. What we're finding now is that so many people have been treated in addition to those that are spontaneously cleared that a positive antibody, 90% of the positive antibodies we see are PCR negative, either because they've already been treated or cleared. Areas of high prevalence, so for example, sometimes in the present, sometimes in a new drug service, uh, we can go straight to an HCV RNA, particularly with the Kefid machine, which means that we can get people started on treatment within an hour or two, and that's really crucially important. Personally, I think we should be moving to antigen testing uh, as a screening, it's cheap, it's a serological sample, and it excludes those people um, who are antibody positive but PCR negative. There's a few issues around the absolute sensitivity and specificity, but as a public health, I think screening with an antigen may be the way forward for the future as we get a greater population who are antibody positive, PCR negative. But yeah, how about, uh, do, you, do you agree with that, Ahmed, or what do you think? Uh, it's a fair point, and I think the fact that we are seeing increasing numbers of antibody positives but RNA negatives. I, I'd add one point, and perhaps we need to wrap up in the interest of time. We've adopted as an approach in our homeless hostels where we have peers from the Hepatitis C Trust is a, a quick screen to identify someone's at risk, then an or assure antibody test that gives you a result within 10 minutes, then an, a Kefiad RNA to see whether that patient is viremic or not. So that's an alternative, more cost-effective approach. But you want to try and use opportunistically get that patient, get to confirm whether that patient is viremic in the same session. So you might only have that individual for half an hour. Try and get as much information as possible during that half an hour. So a quick, very focused five-minute history, followed by an all-assure antibody test that gives you a result within 10 to 15 minutes, followed by a, a fingerprint to run a caffeine PCR. And then you could be starting someone on treatment very, very soon after that. Totally agree. 
Thank you very much, Professor Brown and Dr. L. Sharkley. And thank you to the listeners for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Tackling Racial Disparities in Care for HIV and Viral Hepatitis, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.